I think one of the most remarkable things about Lincoln for all of his faults and certainly all of his historically contextual views on race, he was he was adaptable. Um, the words and arguments of Lincoln that were read in the 1858 debates with Stephen Douglas, not Frederick Douglas, are, are not the same words and stances of a man that oversaw uh, abolitionist legislation passed. So what changed for Lincoln along the way? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter. So each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host. And this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. This podcast is presented to you by Central Seminary a historic Baptist seminary founded in Kansas that now is diverse, cross-cultural, and ecumenical with a significant global footprint. Leading with the values of community, empathy, growth, and tenacity, Central Seminary equips students with the theological knowledge, spiritual insight, and practical skills needed to lead in an ever-changing world. We cultivate an inclusive, multi-language community of reflection where critical thinking and discernment are welcomed and encouraged. Central offers numerous graduate degrees and certificates, including Doctorate of Ministry in Creative Leadership, Master of Arts in Counseling, Certificates in Chaplaincy Studies, and Peace and Justice Ministries, and much more. Most programs are offered fully online. To learn more, visit cbts.edu or search for Central Seminary Kansas City. This podcast episode is sponsored by the Forum for Theological Exploration. Founded in 1954, FTE is a leadership incubator that inspires young people to make differences in the world through Christian communities. This month, FTE is launching Call to Pastoral Ministry, a new four-week online course designed for young adults discerning their next most faithful step towards ministry. Going to seminary can incur a $50,000 or more price tag. FTE wants to help you to be confident about your decision to attend seminary or to pursue other paths towards ministry before making a large investment. Call to Pastoral Ministry will expand your imagination, share inspirational stories, provide discernment practices, and affirm your call in diverse communities of peers and mentors. Enroll in FTE's course and be empowered as you discern a call by God to pastor, preach, and serve. The course launches on April 1st, with enrollment closing March 31st. Visit fteleaders.org backslash called to learn more and to enroll for free today. 
Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. David S. Reynolds. He's a distinguished professor at Graduate Center of the City University of New York. He's also authored numerous books about Walt Whitman, John Brown, George Libbard, and this obscure figure in American history named uh, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, he's penned a book in 2020, Abe, Abraham Lincoln and His Times, that's now been made into a docuseries by Apple TV Plus called Lincoln's Dilemma. Dr. Reynolds, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you, Andy. Great to be here. Now, I was alluding uh, to this earlier uh, before we started recording. Uh, of course, read your book, and I've read dozens of books on, on Lincoln. Uh, I was reading somewhere recently that there's been over 16,000 books written on Abraham Lincoln. Um, you know, and at a glimpse into Lincoln's life, it's, it's a portrait of the complexities of his days. He's raised in a highly religious household, dealing with very early on the loss of his mother, the, the abandonment of his father to retrieve a new wife over a long period of time, failed businesses, the death of his first sweetheart, the loss of several children, this ubiquitous cloud of depression that hung over him. Uh, nevertheless, probably the mental health issues that his wife was dealing with. And then there was the political powder keg uh, that was ready to be lit around the issues of slavery and, and states' rights. Um, so as if that wasn't enough, why, why are you so drawn to writing about Lincoln? As you mentioned, Andy, there have been uh, over 16,000 books on him. But in all, all of those books, what's left out is what I think is what really feeds into his complexity of character and that is and him as a human being, really, his fullness as a human being, and that is his relationship to his contemporary culture. We're, we're all products of our, our own time and our own culture. And I, I write what I call cultural biography. His contemporary Ralph Waldo Emerson said that, said that alone among all great heroes, Abraham Lincoln spanned the entire realm of culture from the very highest. Now he had less than one year of education, but he could quote Shakespeare by the page, poetry by the page to the very lowest. Um, he liked body jokes, you know, sort of dirty jokes. And he, and he liked everything in between sentimental songs. And he was kind of curious about the people around him. And when he was on uh, the law circuit, he would go up to a farmer, a farmer and say, how does that machine work? Or what uh, breed is that cow or that pig or something like that? So he's sort of like eternally curious. And he's the on only president we have uh, who has patented a patented invention. He invented a device to allow uh, river boats to float, uh, float over shoals. So it's that range of curiosity that really feeds into his broad humanity and leads eventually toward, you know, malice toward non charity to all. And uh, at the same time, he was someone who as broad-minded as he was, uh, came to be very channeled, uh, focused on the uh, institution of slavery and try, trying to halt slavery. He was surrounded by so many isms uh, of his day, spiritualism, mesmerism, uh, free love, uh, women's rights, and so forth. And, you know, he said, there's only one ism, he used that word, uh, that we have to focus on right now. That's Douglasism. Douglas was Stephen Douglas, his opponent, would allow the spread of um, 
uh, slavery into the Western territories. And so he was bouncing off of his culture. And he said, we really have to concentrate on preventing this, the spread of slavery because once you have more and more slave states in the West coming uh, into the Union, suddenly you have Congress totally overwhelmed, irretrievably overwhelmed by senators and representatives. And, and we've lost the government. Also, the South wanted to take over uh, Cuba and uh, uh, possibly Mexico and Latin America and spread slavery down there. So it's a lot of these contextual elements that really have been left out of the portrait of Lincoln. And it makes him, I think, a much more interesting uh, figure. Well, you know, Lincoln is considered to be one of the greatest presidents. Uh, um, he, he holds the moniker of the great emancipator and honest Abe. And, and Lincoln was an astonishing leader in one of the most complex times in American history, seeking both uh, to squelch rebellion while also attempting to hold a union together. And yet our, our views are, of Lincoln are almost, uh, you know, uh, synonymous with the whitewashing of history, um, forgetting the really bad stuff and glorifying the loosely based facts of America's past. Uh, what, is, what is one of the, the more grander, I guess, for lack of a better term, myths about Lincoln that is critical to understand in order to correctly see him in his place in history? Well, we tend to make him iconic because uh, in part because of his assassination five days after Lee surrenders to, to Grant, he's killed by this white supremacist, um, John Wilkes Booth, uh, who hated Lincoln, of course, and, and killed him in, in the theater. And that immediately put the halo of hagiography hey around Lincoln that really remains to some degree during, uh, uh, until this very, very day. And, um, so I think that it's wrong to mythologize him. He was a human being um, and he dealt with so many deaths in his own uh, family. He uh, was at times suicidal early on, uh, suicidal over love relationship. Uh, um, and uh, he had to suffer through uh, both the death of, of Eddie, his young son, and then and Willie when he was in the White House. Not to mention the fact that he had to confront uh, the death of 800,000 Americans during the Civil War. And uh, he really felt these things on his nerve endings. He had a tendency toward depression, which was not a crippling de depression, but he managed to, to get himself through it. But still, he had, uh, it was called melancholy back then. Um, so, uh, it's, it's very important to bring him down from his pedestal. And also it's important to put, put him in political context because even though he was close to African-Americans in Springfield, Illinois, where he lived, they were among his best friends, closest friends. Publicly, he was running for office, uh, first in Illinois, in the state, it was, uh, had one of the worst uh, racist laws in, in, in the nation, as Frederick Douglass noted. Um, the Negro Exclusion Act didn't allow uh, free African-Americans to en enter the state unless they already lived there. Um, and, and so it's a very, very racist state. And yet he was close to African-Americans, but he was running for office. And he was uh, running against this very popular white supremacist, Stephen Douglas. Um, and so he sometimes had to say things that were a little more cautious and a little more conservative 
in order to win votes. Although even when he, just after he said them, I, I, you know, I really believe that the black people should have the same rights under the constitution that the white, white people should have too. So, but he had to stay on his tightrope. Uh, he compared himself quite often to Charles Blondin, the famous tightrope walker who went back and forth across Niagara Falls, sometimes with a man on his back, pushing a wheelbarrow uh, at night backwards in chains uh, and so forth, an, an amazing tightrope walker. <clears throat> and Lincoln several times says, you know, I'm, I'm blonde and I have to stay in the center to win votes, but also when he was in, in office, I can't make the war a war for emancipation immediately. Why? There are these five border, state, border states that have people in slavery, but they're still loyal to the North. And he said, you know, if we lose, if I do the, say the wrong thing, and if we lose uh, Kentucky, we're gonna lose everything. Uh, we might as well give up Missouri. We're, we're just gonna lose uh, the whole thing. So he had to slowly make it a war for emancipation. And then by 1863, we uh, have the Emancipation Proclamation. And then we have uh, uh, that final push toward the 13th Amendment in 1865 at the end of the war, which abolishes slavery. But it was kind of a slow incremental march toward emancipation. And, but that, that's what makes him interesting. I want to come back to in just a few moments, uh, kind of the conversation around Frederick Douglass, which is a critical part of the series, um, and certainly uh, a part that we forget about. But I want to talk, take this just a little bit deeper, you know, an honest assessment of many America's quintessential political figures would see, you know, Washington was a egotistical self centered jerk, <laughs> Jefferson was a bundle of aristocratic contradictions and on and on. Why do we do this? Why, why do we glorify our historic, historical political figures and not have an honest conversation about who they really were, the context they lived in, and then have a dialogue about, you know, how we can do better? Why, why do we avoid this? We tend to want to uh, create heroes in the past. And I think that uh, in a sense, it's almost like personal memory, where when you look back, if you're a normal person and you, if you look back, uh, quite often uh, things that were very uh, anxious or tragic in the past suddenly get filtered out a little bit, unless you're totally obsessed with something. But, um, and I think it's true about Lincoln, about Washington and Jefferson. And nowadays there's a lot of conversation about the contradictions within, within all of them, which I think is healthy. But for most people, they tend to idealize these people. And I think it's very important to realize that they were just people struggling through their time and their crises, just as uh, we are today. At the same time, I think it's uh, all, also important not to simply dismiss these people because did, did Jefferson live up to what he wrote in the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal? No, he didn't live up to it personally, but that was an ideal it's kind of the most important statement in American history. It's, it's an ideal that probably no society has ever uh, totally lived up to, but it's, it's something that is the fundamental basis for, uh, for America, the ideal of, of democracy. And when Lincoln calls democracy uh, the last best hope of earth, and when he, when he says of the people, for the people, and by the people, um, he's voicing an ideal that 
even to this day is not totally uh, 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 realized. And yet these people managed to, uh, in their best moments, to give voice to uh, these soaring ideals that then people will try to live up to, although perhaps never fully achieve. This podcast is presented to you by CBF Church Benefits. At CBB, your benefits are our ministry. For 25 years, CBF Church Benefits has proudly served the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, providing retirement benefits and insurance services for CBF-affiliated church ministries and staff, along with CBF field personnel in Atlanta and around the world. CBB helps simplify the administrative burdens of your retirement plan, allowing you and your ministry staff to focus on your ministry. CBB can also help you maintain your overall benefit package, including life and disability benefit and international medical insurance for international missions. Through generous philanthropic support, CBF Church Benefits recently launched the Financial Wellness Initiative. This new initiative offers ministers the opportunity to receive financial relief grants, financial education experience, and financial planning services. Please visit CBF Church Benefits website at churchbenefits.org to learn more about CBB, our benefits, and the financial wellness opportunities designed to help you thrive in your mission and ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Do you think our, our inability to talk honestly about our past is causing some of the social and political divide we see today? Yeah, because what happens is that um, there are a lot of people who don't have a firm knowledge of history. Um, in many polls, uh, states' rights is, is uh, named as more important than slavery as the issue for the Civil War. Um, and in, in a, not so di- uh, in a Sm- Smithsonian uh, poll of 2019, um, 49 of the 50 states received an, an F. There were about 50,000 people um, interviewed, got an F in history. And the only one that passed, um, I think it was Vermont, got a 53. So it's kind of a, grave cur- uh, a curved uh, grade there. So uh, very poor uh, knowledge of history. And I think that it's very important to pe- for people to learn the knowledge because if they don't see what happens is that people make up their own history. And so, um, you know, suddenly you might see whatever, the Confederate flag waved in uh, um, the White House, uh, or you could see, um, you know, someone like Dylan Roof, who uh, got on a pro-Confederate website, a very misleading kind of uh, website uh, that uh, said very good things about about the Confederacy and also had a lot of listing of black on white crime. And then he goes into a uh, Charleston church and slaughters uh, 
nine worshipers there having posted the Confederate flag uh, on, uh, on, on the internet. So if you don't understand history, then I think it's easy to forget the lessons of history. And I think it's very, very important. Uh, and I think that uh, Lincoln's Dilemma, the series, and also my book, uh, Abe, um, is, uh, are, they're, they're both strides toward recovering uh, the true history mm -hmm. of that time. Um, you can't have a conversation about Lincoln without talking about the impact of his relationship with Frederick Douglass. And yet, Douglass is so often left out of the conversation for many historians on just how significant his influence was on, on Lincoln. Uh, will you take us a little deeper there? Frederick Douglass was an enslaved person who um, uh, escaped to freedom in 1838. He became a leading orator, anti-slavery uh, orator and editor, uh, very influential as a speaker. And um, he uh, at first was a little cautious about Lincoln and critical because he wanted the war, the Civil War, to be uh, directed immediately against the abolition of slavery, as opposed to just saving the Union. Um, and uh, he would, he didn't meet Lincoln until 1863, but before then he was rather critical. He was like the conscience almost uh, of Abraham Lincoln, uh, sort of a goading conscience and kind of a nagging uh, conscience. And he had a certain freedom because he wasn't running for office. He didn't have to win votes or anything. So um, he could say certain things uh, that the people like Martin Luther King, you know, certain eloquent reformers have said over the years, they're not running for office. And Lincoln, even though he hated slavery just as much as, uh, he said just as much as any abolitionist, I, I, I detest slavery. But uh, as a politician, he had to uh, remain on his tightrope. But um, finally, when um, Douglas uh, meets with Lincoln in uh, 1863, he very rightly says, you know, why don't African-American soldiers receive the same compensation as white soldiers? And, uh, uh, you know, Lincoln said, well, we had the Emancipation Proclamation that, that, and, and we admitted uh, African-Americans in, into the army. And he says, uh, you're right, uh, you know, they, you're absolutely right. They should receive equal pay. I, once I make a decision that I never go back on it and that will be forthcoming. And indeed the pay was equalized the following year uh, within the first six months of the following year. But I think Douglas was pretty instrumental or at least he uh, vocalized this uh, need uh, for equal pay and it finally came. And what Lincoln did actually though, uh, is uh, he cut off prisoner exchanges with the South uh, until they were willing to exchange uh, Afri uh, captured African-Americans. Um, so he was not gonna give back uh, 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 captured Confederates unless the Confederates would give over uh, captured Afri uh, African-American soldiers. So that, that was one thing he did on behalf of blacks. And then the next year he meets with Frederick Douglass and, uh, by that, and he gives Douglass a mission 
to uh, be like John Brown and go into the deep south and spread the word of emancipation among the enslaved millions. And Douglas is thrilled by the idea, although uh, the military successes of the Union in the fall actually obviate uh, the need for uh, Douglas's expedition. Finally, uh, Douglas uh, gives a eulogy after uh, Lincoln is assassinated in which he says, yes, uh, Lincoln was the white, white man's president, but also he was, uh, you know, like nobody else, the, the black man's president as well, the first one to recognize the rights for black people. And ultimately he came to say that Lincoln could seem slow on slavery, lethargic, tardy, but actually he was radical, swift, uh, and decisive, given the temper of the times, given the fact that so many people in the, the North were still racists and so and there were a lot of copperheads and so forth. So given the temper of the times, he said ultimately he was re really quite radical and, and decisive on slavery. And he also later said, personally, Lincoln was the least racist white person I've ever met. And the same thing was uh, said by the African-American feminist Sojourner Truth, who, who uh, met him in the White House. And, 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 and then Martin Delaney was like Malcolm X, who uh, idolized uh, Lincoln. And uh, uh, they all said the same thing. That personally, he, he had not a shred of racism whatsoever. Well, speaking of John Brown, I'd love to have you back on just to talk about John Brown. Just, oh, it's yeah. just such a fascinating figure, uh, you know, from a religious angle and, and all those things. And, you know, hearing you talk about Stephen Douglas, I'm still chuckling in my head over, you know, Virginia legislation uh, passing a bill, you know, talking in reference, they said the Frederick Douglas and, and Abraham Lincoln debates. <laughs> you know, just like, <laughs> okay. So, oh, you know, funny. I think. I think one of the most remarkable things about Lincoln for all of his faults and certainly all of his historically contextual views on race, he was he was adaptable. Um, the words and arguments of Lincoln that were read in the 1858 debates with Stephen Douglas, not Frederick Douglas, are, are not the same words and stances of a man that oversaw uh, abolitionist legislation passed. So what changed for Lincoln along the way? Yeah, well, in, in 1858, once again, he was running for office uh, against Stephen Douglas, who very directly said, this should be a white man's government for, forever, forever. O only white, white people you know, in the government. And, and uh, uh, this was after the uh, you know, Dred Scott decision that said black people had no rights that white people had to respect. And it was a very racist environment. And Lincoln was running for the Senate. And he gives this kind of grocery list. Uh, he says, I, 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 I don't like, you know, but uh, Douglas keeps go goading me about this. And then he said um, something about blacks not serving on juries or, or, or voting or something like that. But then he kind of quickly dispenses that and says, but, uh, uh, you know, black people deserve all the same rights under the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence that Stephen A. Douglas or any white person does. So you have to remember that along with those kind of conservative um, remarks that were aimed at kind of the old wig of voters that were kind of voting for, for, for Lincoln. Um, at the same time, he did uh, say things that were very, very radical. He does, he is able to become more overt about his uh, anti-slavery and egalitarian views. 
uh, as the Civil War progresses, because more and more uh, people, enslaved people are free because they flee to the Union lines and there's the Confiscation Act. And you have, so you have more and more uh, civil rights legislation going on. And then there's the emancipation of people in Washington, D.C., D.C., and the forbidding of um, uh, uh, slavery in the territories and so forth. So by the time he passes the Emancipation Proclamation and then at Gettysburg, where he says uh, the nation was founded dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, he says that in the first sentence, that was interpreted by conservatives as insultingly Pro, uh, pro African American. They, they, they said that this is an insult uh, to America because it's too much African. It, it's, it's too, in other words, it was considered a radical speech. So by that time, uh, he was he was uh, very very much able to sort of verbalize his vision of, of human equality, and then he becomes the first president to recommend the vote uh, publicly for African Americans shortly after Lee sur uh, surrenders to Grant. Um, so he's able to, and he, of course, he's, he becomes a huge force behind the 13th Amendment, which uh, is passed by Congress in uh, um, late January uh, 1865 as the war is rolling down, and that abolishes slavery. So yeah, uh, he's able, he says, I'm partly controlled by events. To some degree, I can control, but to some degree, events control me. So in spite of his hatred of slavery that went back to the time he was uh, a child uh, and his parents were anti-slavery and so forth. From that time forward, he hated slavery, but he finally was able to push it on the public, um, push it hard on the public front uh, during the Civil War. What do you think modern leaders, let alone politicians, can learn from uh, Lincoln's adaptability? They can learn a sense of seeing the other side. He never demonized the other side, never made fun of them. In fact, he said, you know, if we lived, at, lived down South at, at this moment, we'd probably feel the same way about slavery that they did. And in the second inaugural address, he says, you know, we both, both the North and the South were praying to the same God and reading the same Bible. Uh, and the prayers of neither were, were fully answered. Um, he had this sense of outreach and compassion, this, this genuine outreach and compassion that went beyond party lines, uh, went beyond just partisan politics. And um, he had a, a certain humanity uh, and also a kind of forgiveness. I mean, when he went through the Civil War hospitals at the end, there were some Confederate soldiers in the hospitals and, and, one, and one Confederate guiltily said, oh, I, I fought for Virginia. And, and Lincoln said, that's fine, that's fine. Let, let me shake your hand. Let me shake your hand. Um, and when he says malice toward none, chari charity to all, I think that that's what leaders can uh, uh, pick up. But also an inflexible uh, pursuit of democracy and, and of human rights and justice. And, and fundamentally, he was driven by human rights and justice. So yes, immense compassion of the other and, and toward the other side, a refusal to demonize anybody, uh, anybody, but at the same time, sticking to uh, justice for all and human rights for all.
and democracy for all. I, I, I think that's what, what leaders uh, can, can learn. Why is now the time to have an honest um, assessment of, of Lincoln? You know, what was happening in his time and the tensions that he held um, in these historic decisions? You know, what, what would the tensions Lincoln would be holding today? The tension that the dilemma, uh, dilemma today would be how to bridge the kind of political and cultural divide uh, in the nation right now, because we do live in a time that is more culturally divided than any moment since the Civil War. So, but we have to recall that he lived in a time that was even more divided than ours. Uh, it came to blows, it came, came to war, and he managed to get the nation through that. I think that uh, if he were alive today, uh, he would use his personal skills, his human skills uh, to kind of bridge the two sides and uh, to stick uh, to the ideal of, of justice and so forth. And it would be difficult for him but at the same time, he faced a very, very difficult situation uh, today. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah. Last question. Um, it's got to be pretty cool that your book got turned into a docuseries, let alone, you know, it's narrated by the Jeffrey Wright. Uh, you know, what do you hope uh, people will take away from the series? I hope that people will look at this series and feel a sense of being in Lincoln's time and feeling his culture. And there's so many great images from that culture and time, images of enslaved people, of Frederick Douglass, of Lincoln himself. There are wonderful animations uh, 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 there as well. Um, and so I, I think just to immerse themselves in the times and also to sometimes make a leap forward to our times as well, because the series also includes certain uh, snippets, January 6th and the tearing down of the Lincoln statue and so forth. So to realize that these are issues we're still wrestling with today. So, yeah. Our guest is Dr. David S. Reynolds. The book is Abe, Abraham Lincoln and His Time. The series is Lincoln's Dilemma on Apple TV+. David, thank you for making the time to have this conversation. And, and thank you for creating um, a much needed, honest conversation about who we are, where we've come from, so that we can make a more equitable and prosperous future for all. Thank you very much, Andy. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. BSK offers multiple ways to pursue theological education, helping you learn and grow in your area of ministry. Programs include a 75-hour Master of Divinity degree with concentration in BSK's areas of emphasis, including black church studies, rural ministry, and pastoral care. For ordained ministers or lay leaders alike, BSK offers nine-hour certificates in black church studies, rural ministries, and pastoral care, as well as two exploring ministry certificates for general ministry training. BSK also offers additional subject-specific training with Flourish workshops in subjects such as Introduction to Youth Ministry, Essentials in Youth Ministry, and the upcoming The Flight of the Soul of America. Now enrolling for fall 2022. Apply today at bsk.edu. 
Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support. 